Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to 2021. It's my first podcast, and I'm lagging. Not good. Two weeks into 2021, and I haven't done a podcast. So here we go. This is a project that I'm working on right now with two other buddies. Got uh, the primary creator is Dino Lee. That's his AKA, better known as Robert Bird and Robbie Curtis. What uh, we're involved in is the 60s documentary centered around Los Angeles and all the major players in terms of rock and roll music that really haven't been mentioned in a clear and, and uh, revealing way. So it's a real fresh look. 12-part series aimed for streaming, Netflix, Amazon, documentary channel. We're going to discover where it ends up. We're really close to a trailer now and really getting into talks with development. This particular interview, I think this is interview number 20. This is with a really interesting uh, gentleman. He came to us by way of writing. He's a an American author, historian, and television producer who focused, you know, is primarily on music and the youth culture. Uh, he's written extensively about the Beach Boys, particularly the Smile album, including two books on the subject, Look, Listen, Smile, Vibrate, and Smile. The uh, story of Brian Wilson's Lost Masterpiece, 2011. He's contributed to the liner notes and the Smile Session compilation. He's also published a number of books on articles on the greater Los Angeles youth culture during the 60s and special focus on the surf craze and the Sunset Strip music scene. Priori worked on, you know, television also. He was the primary writer and creative consultant on AMC documentary. He worked on documentaries like Hollywood Rocks, the movies, the early years, 1955 to 1970, and the Hollywood uh, Rocks, the movie, the 70s. He's also written books, in particular, the two I mentioned, but most popular book was Riot on the Sunset Strip. And that's what caught our attention, because that really focuses on the Los Angeles music scene, which is central to our documentary series. So I found out a lot of interesting things about uh, Mr. Priori. This was recorded in studio on July 30th, 2020. Really, what an outstanding just gentleman Mr. Priori was. Really, uh, absolutely, incredibly knowledgeable about that whole scene. I mean, because he lived it. He was there, and he had such a genuine interest at childhood. Kind of it hit him, and he just gravitated towards it. And man, what a fountain of information. And so I set it off. I start the interview, get a little background of the early years and kind of what inspired him. And then it goes off. I hand it off to my partners and they take on a different area of questions. And that's kind of how all the interviews go. 
So before we get into the documentary, let me just leave you with kind of what's the 2021 how it's set off here in Los Angeles and in a, in America and just how 2021 has started here. Really, to me, a strange reflection on the future of America. You have to remember that there's nothing new about the fact that we're a 50-50 split when it comes to presidential races. That's never new. It's always in that neighborhood. There's two parties, and those two parties are always, you know, fighting for who's going to take the position of president. It's really that simple. We only get two choices because it's called divide and separate. And so the objective here is really to get the natives to fight with each other. And as you get the natives fighting with each other, you recognize that they're so engrossed in the fighting that they don't pay attention to what government is really doing. And it's all about diversion. And me, personally, I have no political preference. I'm an independent. That means I walk down the middle. I take politics as entertainment only. I don't get involved in it emotionally. I don't get involved with it. I don't take sides because what's in it for me? It's all a game. You know, the first act of usually the president is he goes out to a major league baseball game and he throws out the first pitch. And that's symbolic. That's symbolic of, hey, kiddies, hey, children, go play ball. Go play ball. Why? Because the adults have work to do and you need to get involved in the entertainment. Just watch, have fun, eat some popcorn, have some hot dogs, have some hot dogs, you know, get some beer in your system and enjoy the circus. Yeah, we'll see where it all goes. There's a lot of conspiracies floating around these days and it's really difficult to get a you know, a meter on what is around the corner. So hopefully, as the new president takes office, Biden, the Biden administration, I'm hoping that things settle down and we get back to a more normal world. You know, is it normal? Well, I've got to think if things continue the way we're going to reach a point of no return where it's a collapse, that's globally. So the sooner we find ourselves back to a normal life instead of lockdown, we're going to be wandering in the desert. The system can't hold itself up if nobody's working. I have optimism and I got to wish for the best in 2021, and I have no reason to think otherwise. So with that, let us take on the interview with Dominic Piori, and Happy New Year to everybody who's listening to this. And just know, you know, Nietzsche said nothing is more important than this day. He was on to something, but what he would have said, if his consciousness was a little bit more elevated, he would have said, nothing is more important than this moment. I want to thank you for sharing this moment with me. Recognize the moment. Love everybody that you know in this moment, because the moment, as it unfolds, is all you'll ever get. And off to the Dominic Piori interview we go. July 31st. 
2020, we're interviewing Dominic Priori, author. Um, Priori, Priori. Priori, and good, we're going to get this straight. Priori. How would you like, just give us the spelling of your name for the credits. Okay, D-O-M-E-N-I-C, last name P-R-I-O-R-E. And I usually ask that if people, you know, uh, do a lower thirds, they put author riot on Sunset Strip. Author riot on Sunset Strip. That's Dash good enough. Or comma or well, however, yeah, you, you, your your English <laughs> works. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm so unless I'm behind the T keyboard, grammar is you know. Now you give us permission to use this footage. Yes, sir. Okay. But yeah, yeah, author. Author dash ride on Sunset Strip, you know, yeah. kind of like that. Perfect. That's that's we'll have something we usually sign it before, but we'll, we'll sign it after just to cool. release. Um, other than that, uh, let me I'll open it up. I sure, no, go ahead. Um, just a little, just a little background on, on you, Dominic. Sure, uh, just give me an idea what where, where you were born and uh, where you what, what your folks, uh, kind of the roots of your. Your existence. Well, I was born in Pasadena, California, and my parents had moved out from New York City. They grew up in Manhattan, and uh, after the war, they lived in the Bronx and for a few years, but then made it out to California in 1954. What did your parents do? My father was a mailman, and my mom just raised kids. And do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I got a brother and a sister. A uh, sister passed away. I was the smallest. I was 10 years younger than my brother and uh, 12 years younger than my sister. Uh, did school have any influence on your future life? Well, yeah, school, I mean, I went to Catholic school for the first five years of, you know, grade school and immediately, you know, got out of that as fast as I could by the time of sixth grade. But, I mean, I was a little MGM in grade school. I used to do really, really well, and I was a total screw-up in high school. Uh, but then when I went back to college, I made up for it and, you know, got a pretty good GPA there. Did you have nuns back then? Uh, in the 60s, there were nuns. Yeah, they, they actually, they my sister took piano lessons and a nun slapped her hand with a uh, ruler. And that's why I never got music lessons because she quit immediately. <laughs> the um, uh, uh, writing, where did the writing background come from? What inspired you to become a writer? Well, you know, uh, back in the 60s, um, my cousin was my age in New York, and I was out in California, so we were encouraged to write letters to each other, and the letters would end up being 7, 10, 20 pages long eventually. We just would write about everything we had, you know, every toy we had, every goldfish we had and stuff, so... They were pretty elaborate and detailed little letters, and I think that's kind of what got me in the writing mode, yeah. Wow, interesting. Now, what, year, what was your first book? What was your first like, uh, published work? Well, the first published work I ever did, I used to be part of this thing called the Graham Parsons Memorial Foundation, and we were in the 1980s, sort of, the goal was to let more people know that who Graham Parsons was and what his music was all about. And that goal was achieved when uh, we worked with uh, the former Rolling Stone editor, Ben Fogg Torres, and uh, he did a book on Graham Parsons, and we sort of worked with him, giving us, you know, our information to him. 
And uh, then Pamela DeBars wrote her book, uh, I'm With a Band. And so between Ben Fontora's book and Pamela's book, Graham Parsons is now more well-known to, I don't know, Gen X and Gen Y than baby boomers, really. Wow, so that was your launching pad. Yeah, that's how it started. And then I did a book on the Beach Boys um, Smile album. It was an unreleased LP that Brian Wilson recorded in 1966. It was the follow-up to Pet Sounds. Um, I just heard that Good Vibrations had been on it and also the song Surf's Up. I said, well, an album with those two songs on it to begin with is going to be a great album. What else was there? And I kept on digging and, oh, all these songs that would have been a part of the Smile Project were amazing. So I just decided to do the real hardball research. And, you know, that was in the 1980s and the book came out in 1988. Did you have any, uh, uh, you know, in terms of a catalyst, what, what, what formed the kind of uh, uh, seed to, to embark on, a, on, on this particular book or those two books? Well, um, when I did Look, Listen, Vibrate, Smile about the Beach Boys Smile album, part of it had to do with the Sunset Strip and the music scene of L.A. during the mid-'60s. The birds had really just changed everything. And it was Brian's you know, goal to try to fit in, you know, with the new sound. So when he did Pet Sounds, he was kind of going for a little bit of a folk rock thing. The first thing he did for Pet Sounds was Sloop John B. And he uh, called, you know, David Crosby over to his house, and David Crosby brought Van Dyke Parks up to his house. And before you know it, you know, Brian is integrated with that, you know, sort of progressive music scene of L.A. during the mid-'60s. So was, was Brian just a run-of-the-mill musician to you? Oh, no. No, Brian Wilson was brilliant from day one, and the Beach Boys were a really good surf band. Uh, they played instrumentals, and they played vocals, and, you know, Surfing USA album was one of their most popular ones in 1963. So they were they were a competent, cool band, and I remember them being, like, the most popular group in America before the Beatles came out. Would, would you say that he was... I mean, it, Okay, you differentiate him as a, an individual that was special. Oh, yeah. What made him special? Well, the thing that made Brian Wilson special is he's sort of like, it's been said he's an idiot savant, you know. He just sort of like bowls everything over. He's grabbing information and he's moving really quickly and he's very impatient, you know, and he just takes things in and then throws them back out. Um, and, you know, he has this innate musical genius. He spent many hours, you know, just trying to entertain his father from so that his father wouldn't beat him up he was banging on the piano when he was a kid so he just spent tons of time with music and eventually just you know he was like a tornado you know and in a way by the time he did pet sounds and smile he was sort of like the icarus of rock and roll he just reached so high and it just you know his wings kind of faded there what was when you were alive and you were you know right in the thick of it what was that like i mean in terms of just the the uh, what do you call that? Weltanschauung? What, 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 what was it like to be in that place at that time? You mean L.A. in the middle '60s, and yeah, just and I was just a kid, but and related to music. Yeah, well, in the middle '60s, being in L.A., I mean, I was felt very fortunate. Like I had an older brother and an older sister, and the older sister really took care of me a lot. So I was always cruising down to the beach with her and all of her friends in bikinis, uh, the classic thing, you know, and a lot of sunshine, a lot of radio, 
and a lot of really fantastic music in 1965, 1966 especially. Those were the best years. But the Beatles breaking in America in 1964 was the catalyst for all these American garage bands to happen. Everybody just picked up a guitar and just started going, you know, and then they heard the Stones and it got even rougher. So that's kind of what I'm really into, what would be called Nuggets music now, I guess. Did, did, did you basically from a, from a, uh, you know, from an audience point of view, what did that mean to the culture as a teenager? Well, it really turned a lot of minds around those teenagers of that time. I mean, marijuana definitely was one of the things that was, you know, we were a little bit ahead of the curve here, not only with marijuana, but with LSD. Um, I know that Brian Wilson took LSD as early as 1965, and supposedly California Girls was, the intro was written on LSD at least. So, um, but it was something that, like all these metaphysical things and yoga and health food and all that kind of stuff first started happening in L.A. because the music, the Birds and World Pacific Records, which, you know, had the jazz label, but also the Doors' first sessions, the Beach Boys' first sessions, the Birds' first sessions were all at World Pacific. So this consciousness was the important thing and separated L.A.'s music from the previous pop music of the times. Did you say it was the centerpiece of just the birth of... Of, I mean, not only the birth, but the epicenter of rock and roll. Was it L.A.? Well, L.A. was the epicenter of rock and roll after New York. New York had it in the 50s. You know, it was like Alan Freed, the Paramount Ballroom, Brooklyn. That was really the happening rock and roll of, of the original rock and roll era. But by 1964, Dick Clark had moved American Bandstand out to L.A. The Tammy show happened, and that had, like, James Brown, the Rolling Stones, all the Motown acts. So, um, and the Beatles being on Capitol Records caused people to really start looking at Los Angeles as, you know, hey, here's Capitol Records, here's the Tammy show, here's Dick Clark. And the Beach Boys were the most popular group in America. Phil Spector had all the records coming out of L.A., and that's kind of when the change shifted, you know, like it went from New York City being the center to Los Angeles being the center in 1964. So 65 was the big explosion when the birds came out. What did that explosion feel like? Well, when I first saw the birds album, Mr. Tambourine Man, I looked on the back cover and there's a picture of this, you know, young band and Bob Dylan's with them. And I'm thinking Greenwich Village has come to Los Angeles, you know. Um, what were your uh, favorites as a as a teenager? Who like what was what was the what was the bands that you would like really tune into and follow? Well, I mean, I really started getting into music a lot earlier than being a teenager, and I think the Beach Boys and Dick Dale and the Deltones and Richie Valens were the first three artists I ever really listened to, and then when the Birds came out, you know, that just escalated everything. I was a five-year-old kid who knew who Bob Dylan was. <laughs> and uh, eventually all those groups that happened, Love, The Turtles, The Doors, you know, Frank Zappa, uh, The Buffalo Springfield, just, man, man, that was really just, I was seeing all these groups on Shebang, Chivalry, uh, Ninth Street West, Groovy, Boss City, like local LA TV shows. And then they were on sh other national shows like Shindig too, but we had all the best local shows here. Right. Frank Zappa. What do, you, what, do you, what do you know about Frank Zappa? Well, you know, Frank, you know, groups like Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention and also Love, they were sort of like 
the groups that your older brother and his kind of hip friends knew about, you know, and you just kind of heard about them. And maybe you got to hear a little bit about them. And my brother told me, hey, you should buy the Easy Rider soundtrack, you know. And so then I heard Jimi Hendrix. And that's kind of what was a real big turn on. And again, this was tumultuous. Ch culture was changing. And yeah, I was just five, six, seven, eight, nine. But still, like, I was aware of the Vietnam War. I was aware that the Vietnam War was bad. Uh, and, you know, I just, whereas my father, you know, he was a World War II veteran. And he didn't even approve of the Vietnam War, but he was somebody who completely always talked about World War II and, you know, the, the heroics of that time. So it was a bit confusing, but at the same time, you could see that, you know, the corporate elements of America were just kind of like honing in on this fake war, you know? What was your first concert or real-life uh uh, you know, getting close to a celebrity that you really admired in music? Oh, um, the first time I ever saw a concert was uh, 1964 as a four-year-old kid. I walked across the street from my house. I lived near a park, and this surf instrumental group called Adrian and the Sunsets played. Now, the previous year, Dick Dale and the Beach Boys had played at that park, but they played in the basketball gym at a sock hop. So already, you know, like, the Beach Boys and Dick Dale were in my neighborhood, you know, that was a big deal to me. And then by the time I was like, you know, a teenager, it took a long time for me to go to a professional rock concert like that. And in the old days, it was sock hops, but this was sort of more of stadium rock or arena rock. I got to see Led Zeppelin. I got to see Eric Clapton right after he was in Derek and the Dominoes. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of like the early concert experiences. But soon I got to see my heroes, the birds. What, what, uh, what do you think the 60s did to American culture at large, just in general? What did that musical influence, what, what kind of impact did it have culturally? Well, the impact the 60s had culturally, oh, sorry, <laughs> the impact the 60s had culturally were really like, it was more about raising the level of consciousness. I mean, kids were going to college more after the World War II happened. You know, it was, it was you know, there was more of an education phase. You know, like you remember this TV show called College Bowl where it would like be three students from one college and three students from another college and they'd be like asking them really difficult questions. And so, you know, already that was in motion. And then, you know, the metaphysical part of it started coming up. The anti-war, you know, the equal rights, all these things just molded into a total cause. Sort of like Occupy was later on, you know. It's like everybody had a million things that they wanted to accomplish with Occupy. But in the 60s, every single element of that had its own movement, you know. Um, and they sort of consolidated in the culture at large, and that was the counterculture. You think the counterculture, just opinion-wise, was it was it a was it a, like a a left uh, kind of attempt to uh, break down the you know the American way? Mm, that's a good question. Um, the counterculture was definitely coming from the left. It wasn't a right wing thing at all. And we knew right wing as being Hitler was a right winger. So. 
Um, the American way, the counterculture kind of figured that was a fallacy in a way. It's like all put on. It's almost like when people say, oh, put you know, under God back in the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, that was only something that happened in the 50s during the Red Scare times. That hadn't been there. So the American way really was sort of like being defined by somebody here in media, but it really wasn't the way America had operated from the times of Teddy Roosevelt or anything, you know. It was, the American way is just to be defined. You don't take it as a, you don't take it as a, this is just an organic, this is all organic. There wasn't anything, uh, there wasn't anything in the music part of it that had some orchestrated uh, left uh, agenda. Well, I don't think that the left agenda in the popular music of the 60s was orchestrated as much as it came out organically. I mean, uh, first of all, rock and roll starts in the 1950s with rhythm and blues. And the majority of rock and roll in the 50s are rhythm and blues artists. That's why you hear, you know, doo-wop was the primary sound of the rock and roll. And then the other guys like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley, the sort of solo artists, they were almost an anomaly. They were the superstars of those days. But really the common music of rock and roll had been the Del Vikings and the Flamingos and, and groups like that, which were all black groups. And I think that's really the reason why... Um, you know, the parents were so against rock and roll in the 50s because they were afraid that their daughters were screaming and going berserk over Frankie Lyman and the teenagers and other black artists. So we had to get rid of this because it was a race thing all the way. So from the day one, rock and roll was a black music, you know, that white people got involved with. And the controversy surrounding it all had to do with prejudice. Did you have any uh, idea of like the Chitlin circuit? Did you ever... Yeah. <laughs> well, the Chitlin circuit was sort of what they called, you know, the places that black artists could play. I mean, it was tough for them to get a motel. It was tough for them to get a dinner when on the road. Even the baseball players of those times that toured, you know, all these cities that had a hard time getting dinner or a place to stay. So they had special places and special neighborhoods where they can actually feel comfortable. Like in L.A., the Dunbar Hotel in Central Avenue was the home for all the great you know, rhythm and blues artists who came here and also W.D.B. Du Bois stayed there. So, you know, there's that was how the nation was. It was totally separated. Were you familiar with the, the 5-4 ballroom or one of those other places around? Yeah. Um, you know, like the 5-4 ballroom downtown and um, Shep's Playhouse and uh, the Million Dollar Theater. There was also the United Artists Theater, um, which was much like in the Paramount Ballroom, just like in New York. So these big theaters downtown hosted all the, the rock and roll shows that were primarily R&B. Wow. Um, <laughs> Sorry for that. Sorry for knowing all that. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, Shep's Playhouse came out and just popped into my mind. A lot of times I would have forgotten that place, you know. Frank Zappa did the score to my dad's movie. He was like 20 years old. A movie called The World's Greatest Sinner. Oh, yeah. Stuff, a lot of the stuff was shot at, at the 5-4 ballroom. Yes. We have all this amazing footage that we're going to incorporate. In oh, it. yeah, yeah. The 5-4 ballroom and The World's Greatest Sinner is a really great that they captured that. And, you know, it was a primary rhythm and blues venue. You may have just gotten into a second documentary because Romeo's doing a documentary on his father. 
and the movie. Did you Your know? father was Timothy Carey? Yeah. What? Wow. I told you I was a byproduct of the Stanley Kubrick film. Oh, there you go. The killing. Uh, Paths of Glory. Well, it started, you're right. It started, it started with Paths of Glory, but then he, but then he, um, he met my mother in Germany doing Paths oh. of Glory. Wow, wow, wow. I did not know that, man. So, yeah, yeah, no, 5-4 Ballroom is in that film, and it's, that's good footage. That is good footage. What, what, just real quick, since I have you in front of me, who, who was Timothy Carey to you? Well, <sighs> now I'm self-conscious. Uh, no, uh, Timothy Carey uh, just was a force of nature the way he spoke. I mean... It doesn't matter if I see him in a Cassavetes movie in 72 or in a Kubrick movie from the 50s. It's just like he's riffing. And, you know, I think one thing I always remember is parts in the Beach Party movies where he plays a really mean guy like South Dakota Slim or North Dakota Slim. And he, he's just got so many great funny lines that are just popping out of his head. So, yeah, he's a real character. And that World's Greatest Sinner was just a brilliant film. Did you know that Zappa did the score for it? Oh, yeah. yeah. What did you think of the score? Well, let me tell you about the score of The World's Greatest Sinner. I mean, it might be an obscure piece of music to a lot of people, but in New York City, uh, in the 90s and after, I used to hang out with this group of people from Norton Records and the A-Bones and all these. And World's Greatest Sinner was like almost an anthem in New York for all this post-punk alternative people that I hung out with. <laughs> Did you know that? Uh, yeah, you're, you're, I was in that circle too for a while. I interviewed <laughs> them. There you go. Yeah. 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 Billy and Miriam from Norton were very, are very close friends of mine. And yeah, when yeah. I met, when I met Billy, he was like, I became like my dad. He was like, he couldn't approach me because he was just so, it was just, wasn't me, but it was the closest thing he was going to get yeah. to my dad. It was like unbelievable. Well, I used to be on Art Fine show all the time. I, I didn't go on when your dad was on, but I used to see all the shows with your dad, with the insect trainer and all that. Right. Are <laughs> you know about the insect trainer? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. We're looking to I, turn that into a feature film. There you go. Yeah, we... we we cross boundaries into all these areas. That's amazing. I had no idea that you were such a font of information. Did, did well, you, yeah. Do you know who ended up playing the title role of Quasti Q Quasti, the, the lead in Insect Trainer? No, no. Paul Nardi. Romeo. Do you know who the understudy was? No. Under my dad? Uh-uh. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Well, you got some great footage for your other documentary. Now, I've called your father a force of nature, and I've called Brian Wilson an idiot savant. But anyways. Hey, man, this place, L.A., is so full of, like, all this corporate overlords all over the place that, you know, for anything, like, real to come out, you have to be a complete bastard, you know? Well, you have to be... You have to be willing to fight against everything that is against you. Yeah. Those, you know, they're, they're, they're complete, really, those artists that you really remember mm -hmm. have to push back so hard that you can't forget them. And some of them do it without physically. They just do it with that of their creation. The creation is just so damn original that 
you recognize and some have you know different approaches well yeah like for example the birds i mean gene clark was a beautiful tall rugged you know redwood tree of a man you know and roger mcgoon was like a science geek practically but it was david crosby who was like the ballistic guy who was out front and like you know making all the noise and doing good interview you know i mean you had there had to be that kind of person like even the birds who were sort of you know maybe a like a little like mellowish actually but they weren't when it came to physically addressing what was happening. Um, well, you guys want to take a go. You know, just go ahead, Dino. Great. Terrific. I don't it up. Thank you for coming out here today. <laughs> it's fun, yeah. We appreciate it. Um, I want to ask you about Richard Berry. Oh, okay, yeah. Do you know much about Richard? You know, I know a lot about him, uh, and I have a lot of his records and stuff, but I mean, you know, I don't um, have his life story down, but I do I do recognize his place in, in L.A. R&B, yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit about him at all? Uh, like, his, uh, when he was coming up as an artist, he, he wrote the song that he wrote. Yeah, yeah, that was, I know that whole story. Well, you know, back on the Sunset Strip in the 1950s, there was an artist, and his name was, um, oh my God, I forgot. Just a second, I, I remember it again. Okay, back in the 1950s at the Crescendo Nightclub on Sunset Strip, there was an artist called Rene Tuzette. He had a song called El Loco Cha Cha, and it was like a popular record that people heard around in L.A. And uh, there was a group called the Rhythm Rockers out at Harmony Park Ballroom in Anaheim where the teenagers used to go dance in, in Orange County. And uh, the Rhythm Rockers, you know, were on stage, and Richard Berry was their lead singer. But he was backstage waiting, waiting to go on, and he heard them playing El Loco Cha Cha, and he just kind of scribbled down, you know, the words to Louie Louie, and that's how that song came about. What year was that, you know? I'm not sure. Just like a ballpark. I, I'd say ballpark, you know, Louie Louie was written around 1956, 57, something like that. And... Uh... Are you aware of uh, the controversy between the uh, Kingsman and Parker and the Raiders recording that song? Oh, yeah. Well, Louie Louie ended up, you know, becoming pretty popular in the Pacific Northwest when a group called Rock and Robin, Rock and Robin Roberts and the Airedales or something. I, I forget the name of the group. Wait, it was the Whalers, right? Sorry. Okay. Yeah, so Louie Louie became popular in the Pacific Northwest when... Uh, Rockin' Robin Roberts and the Whalers recorded a version of it. And then soon it was covered by Paul Revere and the Raiders and eventually the Kingsmen. Um, what happened with the Raiders version was it was on the first single on Columbia Records that the Raiders had done. And Columbia had like Mitch Miller who hated rock and roll. And, um, you know, he tried to bury the single basically. And so soon enough, the Kings would come up with a raunchy version with the, you know, slurred lyrics that sounded dirty or whatever. And that's the one that made it happen. Did you uh, watch the uh, show Where the Action Is as a kid? Oh, yeah. I used to watch Where the Action Is. I love that show. It was a very ambitious ABC television show for daytime uh, teenage and kids, you know. So... They would go to all parts of the country and have the ABC affiliate in Minneapolis or Atlanta or whatever film a bunch of kids at a place where teenagers like to hang out. And they'd have some pop star there. Like in, if it was the South, they'd have a guy like Brian Hyland singing Sealed for a Kiss. 
And if it was in New York, they'd have like the Royal Let's do, it's going to take a miracle with the Manhattan skyline behind them. If they come out to California, it'd be like Paul Revere and the Raiders at Pacific Ocean Park. You know, it's just the vibe of every city and all over America was covered on this show. And a great show it was because Dick Clark did that one thing that very few other people did is he got all these teenage garage bands that came out after the Beatles and put them on TV. That's why you see the 13th floor elevators. You see the Count Five. You see all the great American garage bands, the Seeds and so on. Love. The only surviving clips of those groups are all from where the action is.